Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of I Can Steal That, the true crime podcast that's never too heavy. I'm your host, Pete Stegmeyer. Hope everybody's doing good. I'm I'm living the dream right now. This has been crazy week for me, but things are good. And I am super excited about about this heist. Like it's it's a heist that never really gets any attention in the media, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. But it's also one of the craziest, like most balls to the walls heist that I've ever heard of. And to bring to talk about this one with me, I've got a very special guest. He's a really good friend of mine. I've known him probably 15 years or so at this point. Uh, pretty close to it. We actually went to basic training together. He is now the owner of 5011 Media. He is a fantastic artist. He is actually the man behind the t-shirt design that I'm about to put out. Rick Gideons, how's it going? Hey man, it's you know, it's it's going really good. Things are kind of crazy right now, but that's that's kind of how I like to live it, so I can't complain. That's that's good. That's good. It is it is crazy. But yeah, so like, I, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say like, yeah, I I think it's been probably about 15 years since we've uh since we've met and we've stayed in constant contact pretty much. The entire time. So you're one of the longest ongoing friends that I have. So thank you for having me onto the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. I'm, I'm really excited about this and yeah, that's, that's crazy. That is like, that is a long, that's almost half my life. Yeah, it, it is like to think about it. It's, it doesn't seem like it's that long ago when you just remember it, but when you actually sit down and try to put a time frame on it, it's, it, it kind of is a little unnerving for my uh, soon to come midlife crisis. <laughs> no, it definitely is. So let's get into this one. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. Let's let's speed run this baby. I'm yeah. I'm very excited. So uh have you ever heard of Beirut? I mean as a country or as as a location, yes. Okay, yeah. So Beirut is one of the biggest cities in Lebanon. Yeah. And that is a notoriously stable part of the world. Always has been. Always has been like, <laughs> like everybody gets along, everybody loves everybody, and it's it's super nice. Like so today on this like for this heist, uh, it takes place in Beirut, and the only thing that people steal is a good time. Man, that's the right. best kind of heist. I think that most heist stories are more about the adventure than it is actual what you're stealing because any it's heist. Yeah, it is. Like, who doesn't love a good heist movie? That's that's right. This would actually be an amazing heist movie. I say that most of the time, and I know I'm biased because I love heists, but this one, like, let's paint the picture for you, because this is, like, right. pure movie. Okay, yeah, let's get into this. I'm I'm real hyped right now. Okay, so in January of 1976, a team of eight men dressed in camouflage and protective gear stood in front of the Bob Idris Bank of the British Bank of the Middle East. Um, so we're just going to say BBME most of the time. Okay. And this is located in Beirut. Okay. Each of them was carrying an M16 rifle equipped with an M203, which is, if you're listening, a 40 millimeter grenade launcher that goes under it. It's the one that go, like makes the sound that's like kushunk in the, yeah. in the movies. And it is super fun to shoot. So much fun. It's the best time ever. Like there's there's an automatic grenade launcher, if I'm being honest. 
not as fun as the 203. No, because you don't like you don't really get to experience like the single shot, it's much closer when you're firing it. So you get to f- you get to experience the full thing, but like the the Mark 203 or the Mark 19 is you're you're firing at 400 meters. Exactly. And with this one it's personal, which I right. which I like a lot. Also the I mean, the intimidation factor of that thing underneath of a rifle, anybody that sees that knows like can identify that. Yeah, and you get to wear like that cool bandolier with all the grenades. Oh, and yeah. there's like a bunch of different kinds of grenades. So you're going to have uh, like some of them are like six inches long, and those are going to be like your flares that you can shoot up into the air to like mark locations. Then you're going to have smoke grenades. You're going to have explosive grenades. Like there's there's no limit to the fun that you can have with an M203. And uh, so all of these uh, all these people are carrying these. They also have high caliber pistols, and if they looked like they were dressed for a war zone. It's because they were. Uh, the Lebanese Civil War had just had been going on for about a year, and it would continue on after this for over another decade. And most of Beirut at this point had been kind of torn apart. Uh, they had very little electricity, and there was just constant fighting between various religious and political sects. Like, and this isn't like this is a good example. Like, this is what a modern civil war looks like. Because now you're not going to have, you know, the North versus the South. Like, you're going to have a region that is ungovernable and a bunch of different factions fighting for control of that area. And that's what you have here. So you've got, like, the PLO. You've got, like, some Christian uh, groups. You've got, uh, you know, some of the people, like, still from the Lebanese government, whoever, like, the party in power is is backing you've got international interests at this point so it's it's a mess and everybody's fighting everybody nobody's really sure what's going on so it's chaos and the bbme was located in the middle of the so-called no man's land in the heart of the fighting uh so like right in the middle of all the action is where this bank is and amazingly it's still operating on or at the time it was still operating on a limited basis so you couldn't like do your day-to-day banking there, but the vault was still in operation and people were keeping valuables there uh, because it was still one of the most secure vaults in the region. And so a lot of the wealthy used it to store their valuables. A lot of complacency, I suppose. Yeah. And also like, I mean, when you're in the middle of a war zone, like, like, yeah, you're thinking about your money and stuff like that, but like, not, not really like, there's there's more pressing things going on when like buildings next to you are blowing up. Yeah, um, I think it's one of those things that it's not it's not something that as Americans we we fully are able to comprehend something like that. that yeah, not yet. Because just going out of your door, you could just not come home because of you know some kind of attack you know, explosion or, you know, however it may be, it just might be your end. So I can see where worrying about if is your money safe, not being, I mean, I assume that during the civil war time that the economy probably wasn't booming. And yeah, the economy was the only thing at this point, not booming. And right. also uh, like most of the, like the common people at this point are not really keeping their things. Like they don't have like, you know, keeping the bank money. Like, right, they barely have like keep themselves alive money at this point. Right, and so like this kind of makes this bank like the pinnacle of high risk, high reward. 
Right. And so after conducting like one last check on their equipment and the surrounding area, uh, the commander for the, for this team signals that it's time. And two of the men, uh, they man a 60 millimeter mortar tube <laughs> and start lobbing rounds into the distance. So they're shooting them to the North, to the South, like in areas where like fighting had broken out previously. And they're doing this basically to serve as a distraction because this is going to keep people pinned down and thinking that they're under ambush. So nobody's going to be wandering around and wondering what's going on at the bank. Brilliant. It, it honestly is like, if you've got access to artillery, like, don't use it for a bank robbery, but like, don't not use it. It's if, if you have access to artillery, I, I think that a bank job is really within the realm of possibility. Like right now, like I don't have access to artillery, I'm, and <laughs> I wouldn't even like, know what to do. I don't like the idea of like shelling random neighborhoods, but I think that a a bank robbery is like the least bad thing you could do with artillery. Yeah, I think so too as well. And so, yeah, they start hanging rounds and creating a distraction. And then the rest of the team, they load their grenades into their M203s, aim at the building's windows and doors, and start shooting off the rounds. And these these high-explosive rounds, like, they have to travel a certain amount of feet. Like, I think it's like 75 feet. I thought it was uh, like uh, three rotations or two rotations. Yeah, it is three. Like, it has to spin two or three times in the air. Because the velocity, and- like arms it or something I, yeah because this way like you don't want to like accidentally drop the round and have it blow up so it's got this it has to spin at a very high rate which it does when it's fired out of the barrel of the 203 and i think those two to three turns uh take about 75 feet or so to yeah. be completed but it's still pretty close and so they shoot at the windows and doors and as soon as as soon as the rounds hit like they explode break the glass, break the doors. And then the thieves are able to run into the bank's lobby and clear the floor and clearing the floor. If you're not familiar is basically like what you see in like SWAT team movies and stuff like that, where people, you know, run in and they, each person goes a different direction they check behind things and they can ascertain that there's nobody, there's no threat inside the room. And that's what these guys do. And once the building is secured, the team changes their focus because like phase one is like gain a foothold in the building. Now that they've got that, uh, they have to get into the vault and the vault door is several inches thick and it's made of solid steel. It's probably what would be called a class one vault and a class one vault like refers to the amount of time that it takes somebody to get into the vault because no vault is like impenetrable. And so what you're looking for when you, when you're buying vaults like this or building vaults like this is the amount of time it would take a person to get into it. Uh, And the longer the time, the higher, the more secure that vault is. And so this team realizes that they could get past, but it is going to take a lot of time. And time is one thing that they don't really have a lot of considering they're in an active war zone, but luckily for them, they know another way to bypass the door. Of course they do. That's that's how you know it's a good heist is when like you meet a potential unmovable object and you're like, nope, I know a way around it. Yeah, exactly. They're extremely resourceful. And so they spend the next hour or so building shape charges. And shape charges 
are highly specialized explosives that can direct the force of a blast into a really small area. And this makes, it basically makes the explosion more potent. It like concentrates it. And they're, they're particularly nasty. Like uh, a lot of, a lot of like terrorists and things like that went into Afghanistan and started making shape charges to attack our Humvee. So instead of a normal IED, like the shape charger just blow a hole through, you know, the floor of a vehicle and it could be way stronger. Like it could go through the mind resistant ones and it would really mess up everybody inside because of like the weird physics at play. I know that they were uh, doing so- uh, like the Pepsi cans in the trees and stuff like that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways to do that. And these guys, they they make some shape chargers, which uh, at the time in like 1976 is like pretty, pretty high tech. Yeah. And so after they after they make these, they get them in place and they actually put them on uh, the sidewall of the vault that is shared with a church. So they go into the church next door, uh, figure out where the vault would be and then place the shape charges on the church wall and blow the vault. Brilliant. And yeah. It's, it's so smart. Like it's, this is genius the whole, the whole way through. And so once, once the area is clear, they, they blast the vault and the shape charges go off and there's a huge hole now in the vault and the door. And I know that I said that shape charges will kind of, uh, you know, make a small blast. But this is a relatively small blast because, like, normally if you just fill the room with dynamite, like, it's going everywhere. And here, only the wall is missing. Right. So it's, so it's a lot it's, less obvious that. Yeah. And now you're also, like, not collapsing any buildings. And yeah. It's, it's a mess. Nope. So, so once they get inside the vault, the thieves spend the next two to three days loading up three truck, uh, truckloads worth of loot. Uh, most of this is going to be gold bullion, cash, stocks, bonds, and all sorts of like miscellaneous stuff in safe deposit boxes. And it was worth an approximate 25 million pounds, which in today's money would be about $210 million US. Wow. Yeah. And when all this is said and done, like this is the largest bank heist in history at the time. When you said two or three days loading it up, that just that blew my mind to think that there was they had that amount of opportunity and time on this heist because most like bank robberies or heist jobs, it's it's a matter of get in, get what you can, and get out. And these guys were like, "No, we're gonna we're gonna hunker down. We're gonna get everything." Exactly. That's ballsy. And it is. <laughs> and to this day. Nobody has ever been charged. Like there's a couple of theories as far as who did it, but like there's, there's really two main theories and both of them are equally interesting and plausible. Uh, the most accepted theory is that this heist was planned and executed by Yasser Arafat's uh, Palestine liberation organization or PLO. Yeah. And at the time, at this point in the, the civil war, uh, the PLO was by far the region's most powerful fighting force. Oh, yeah. And they would have had access to all the weapons you needed, all the explosives. They definitely had very skilled explosives makers and things like that. Um, so they, they definitely had the capability to do this. But they, one thing that they wouldn't have the capability to do, according to this, is 
get into the vault. And so according to the most reputable sources on this, and it's worth pointing out, like the sources on this are very difficult to find. Like this, this whole heist has been cut hush hush. Um, so to get into the vault, uh, it's said that the PLO actually hired a team of Catholic safe crackers from Corsica. So like the Italian mob yeah. uh, to get into the vault. And so the deal was that they were going to get one truckload of loot and the PLO would take the other two truckloads of loot. So now you've got like, uh, like a Muslim terrorist organization and a Catholic mafia, like teaming up to rob a bank. And that's just good movie making. Oh yeah. I mean, just like the conflict of interest in that between like the Catholics and the Muslims and just like that whole dynamic um, creating the tension and just imagining the the amount of planning and effort that went into this is just it it they they've definitely earned what they took from the bank i would say i would say so and so the, the agreement according to this is that the corsicans took one truckload and once the once the robbery was done they drove to the airport, chartered a plane with their money and went back to Corsica where the money like ran through the mob. And then the PLO took their two truckloads to Switzerland and started putting it through their notoriously lax banking system, which at the time was even like even more of a haven for crime. Oh yeah. Back in the seventies, that was like when the, the cocaine cowboys were doing their thing and, and all like, there was just so many different groups that were, funneling money through switzerland because it was it was just not a thing that was looked into exactly so the second theory i like this one a little bit more and it's also fairly plausible uh the second theory is that this was actually pulled off by a a team of british sas commandos and sas is secret air service or special air service and officially the sas was never in beirut at the time but clandestine operations are not unheard of. They would have also had access to the necessary training and weapons and explosives. And they would have been one of the few organizations at the time that was like really trained in making shape charges. And according to this theory, the bank was targeted by Britain because several well-known terror groups supposedly kept financial documents in the vault safe deposit boxes. And so they were supposed to go in there, get these documents so that they could, you know, have concrete evidence of like these terror groups, financial information and who's paying them and things like that. And then basically steal everything else, or at least steal a little bit to make it look like a heist. Right. And while this theory has never been officially confirmed and likely never will be, there are a bunch of SAS commandos now, uh, like at least three of them that have admitted to performing the job. And if there's anything I know about the special forces community, uh, I mean, this is mostly just the seals it's that they love telling people what they did and yeah. like writing books about it. So that makes because they have to, they, <laughs> I, I, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I was, just, I was just thinking about that. Cause like, it's just one of those things that there's so like those operations are so balls to the wall, crazy. And then you don't get to tell anybody about it. So you're just got to sit on that for however long you're just like, ah, I know. And so that's, those are the two theories. And that's the one I like the most because of that, actually. Yeah. I like that. I like the the second one a lot better because I just, the, the ID, the ideology behind it and just like the overall 
kind of good-natured intentions behind something that would be perceived as an act of evil. It 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 definitely has the kind of like black operations vibe to the whole thing. It definitely does. And like, I'm just imagining like cool names and stuff like that. It like, it seems like a rainbow six like oh, side story. Absolutely. And like, yeah, so that's, that's the theory I'm going with. But again, like nobody has ever been officially charged in this. It's estimated that everything is worth about 25 million pounds, but it's likely that that number was much higher because of the secret nature of safety deposit boxes and none of the money None of the gold, like nothing that has been stolen has ever been recovered. So they 100% got away with it. Yeah, that's, that's, oh, man, to be a fly on the wall there, just to. I mean, you'd probably have gotten blown up. Oh, absolutely. But it would have been a hell of a ride. It would have been. It's better yeah. than getting like hit by somebody. Yeah. Like, uh, but no, it definitely, like, Everything has a very kind of militaristic vibe, the whole heist as well as like with the the distraction uh, with the mortars and then the violence of action of actually entering the building. Yeah, that's what's making me think that this is most likely uh, a, a, like a legit army operation for the SAS. Like that's, I mean, that's the kind of thing like when we were raiding compounds and things like that, like like obviously like I was a regular infantryman, so it was not at this level, but the principles are there. Yeah. Like Mount training is, I mean, it's the same, well, military operations in urban terrain. I mean, it's basically the same, no matter, you know, who, what army you're working for. It's the action of, of entering and clearing buildings for various purposes. So, and that's definitely not something that I would see, um, a group of civilians being super proficient at not saying that it doesn't happen, but just with everything else with the the M two hundred threes and and the mortars and stuff like that, like that's not that is a grand scale that I think wouldn't be accessible to somebody even in like a war zone to be able to get that kind of access to weaponry and stuff as a civilian and yeah, know that, how. That, that makes a lot of sense. But that is, uh, that's the story of the British Bank of the Middle East heist. I'm going to read if, up uh, more about this. Yeah, definitely. Definitely do. If uh, if somebody wants to find you, uh, maybe like commission you for a work or something like that, what's the best way for somebody to get a hold of you and see some of your stuff? Uh, right now, the best way is, is I've been really focusing on my Instagram. You can find me at 5011FIFTY11 underscore media. And on Instagram, uh, that's where I've been posting all of my artwork right now. And I do take commissions. If you guys are interested, if you like anything that you see, I'm I'm willing to work with you and make your idea a reality. I've actually yeah. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say you do great work. Like we uh, we kind of like came up with a, a concept of me like you know stealing a painting and having like all sorts of like different cool like symbolism and things like that for the podcast and he crushed it like Thanks, it man. looks like me it's like it's really fun uh, i even got like a hamburger mask which has <laughs> always been a dream of mine so it's it's really cool and we're going to be putting that out on a t-shirt and uh 
it's actually on T public now. So any, anything you like, you want a magnet, you want a sticker, like you can get it all at T public. You want a tote bag for, you know, sustainable shopping. You can get that with my face on it. Uh, oh man. Which sounds very narcissistic now that I'm saying it out loud. No, but, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get uh, a bag to help me save the environment that has your face on it. <laughs> so you can be linked to that. Awesome. I mean, anything I could do to make the world a better place. Uh, if you want to follow the podcast, check out, uh, I can steal that on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, TikTok. Uh, you can email us at I can steal that at gmail.com with any show suggestions. Uh, just, general feedback comments hate mail i'll ta- i'll read it i don't care i got some and, hate mail already too i like it and that's i mean that's it like thank thank you so much uh rick for doing the show thank you guys so much that are listening and subscribing if you do like the podcast uh like and share uh subscribe on spotify itunes wherever you get the podcast uh, tell somebody about it. Uh, if you really want to help support the show, we do have a Patreon available, but uh, the show will always be free. Uh, but on Patreon, you'll just get the ad-free versions, and you'll get them early when the episodes are available. But that's that's pretty much it. Thank you so much, Rick. This has no, been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Pete. Like This has been awesome. This I'm going to have to look up and read more about this heist because I am hyped now. <laughs> good, good. It's a, It's a good one. All right, guys, this has been I Can Steal That. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode.